Hello, and welcome to another episode of Get Your Fill, Financial Independence and Long Life Podcast. Thank you so much for being with us today. I know you have a huge, like millions of choices of podcasts to choose from, so I'm really happy and honored that you're here today. And I think you're going to be really happy too, because we have today, it's a highlight reel from some of our older, <coughs> sorry, I'm losing my voice today, from some of our older podcasts, some really great people who are all in various types of real estate investing. So we've just chosen some snippets of how they got into that and how they think that you can make money doing that. And uh, I hope you enjoy that. Before we jump into that, I want to thank Carl Zucroff for the fantastic intro outro music that he adds to every episode. He's with a band called The Blue Hotel, thebluehotel.net, if you want to check them out. They're fantastic. And I also want to thank all of you who have forwarded this podcast to a friend in another country. We just hit 30 countries, which is just so exciting to me. And if you would, you know, I want to hit 50 by the end of the year. We got five and a half months to do it. Please share again. Please share this episode with somebody who you know in another country because we're really uh, enjoying <laughs> spreading the investment story around the world. If you don't know, the beginning reason for me starting this podcast was because I was at that time 55 years old, wanted to retire, and just didn't have any particular uh, amount of money saved. <laughs> really, you know, just a few, you know, maybe 50 grand saved and didn't want to spend the rest of my life working. And so I thought I'd start this podcast with the idea of creating like a brain trust of people who could give me ideas on how to invest and how to make some changes that would really impact my future. And now uh, I just turned 58 on Friday. And I'm really, I mean, I don't want to say that I never have to work another day in my life, but my financial situation has changed dramatically. And I now have enough passive income to pay all my bills every month and really have a great time. So uh, maybe you can have the same experience if you listen to all these past episodes. <laughs> But anyway, um, we're still, that is still the mission. So next week I'll do another highlight reel talking about stock investing because stocks is another great way to increase your capital and create some, you know, put your money to work. That's, that's the whole idea is to put your money to work, make your money, make money. So I hope you enjoy this week's episode. I'd love to hear your comments and thoughts. You can put them into the comment section, or if you'd like, you can uh, reach out. The show website is getyourfillpodcast.com, and that's where you'll find the links to the video. You'll find the links to anything that the guests talk about during the show. And um, in this case, you'll find links to the original episodes from each of these guests that are in the highlight reel. So I hope you enjoy this and have a wonderful week. I'm so excited to have with us today, Tyler Sheff. He's the host of the Cashflow Guys podcast, helping people invest in cash flowing assets for wealth. So my thing is the podcast is all around. It's all about me, basically. And right. I am 55 years old. I have about $50,000 and I don't want to work, you know, more than another couple of hours if that's possible. So right. what advice would you give to someone like me? 
Well, I would, the first advice I'd give you is don't focus on what you do have. Uh, and I know people hear that a lot, but really, I don't, when we get started in real estate investing, we didn't have $50,000, perfectly honest with you. It's great to have that nest egg and whatnot, but I think it needs to be that. $50,000, $100,000, $500,000 is not enough money to get you out of the rat race, in most people anyway, or to escape the rat race. It's just not. And I, I hate to say it that way, but it's, it helps people to get facts, right? Wall Street, everybody will try to tell you otherwise. Like, just keep pumping money in our pockets, and we promise <laughs> that someday we'll retire. Wrong. So how do you do that? Do you just give up and, you know, hope to die young or something like that? Wait on Social Security? That doesn't make sense, right? So for us, it came down to we needed to learn how to help other people. And by help people, obviously that comes with the, the normal help people that may have a, an apartment building or an asset that's in trouble and reposition, all that good stuff. That's great. Mm -hmm. But what people don't realize is there are more folks out there that have capital sitting around that are in that position, those people that have that $50,000 sitting there, and they don't have the courage that you do to go out or the education or the experience to go out and learn how to grow that, that nest egg. So what I've found is that when you can provide a service where you can help other people grow their retirement, not like a financial planner, we actually make them money and don't charge them commissions. Uh, I apologize in advance to any financial planners that might listen to this episode. <laughs> probably hurt your feelings a little bit, but you know, you get over it. I got friends at financial planners, so they told me that I have a license to make fun of them because they actually invest their money with me. <laughs> And that's fair, for sure. You know, like, really? So let me get this straight. You make a living investing other people's money, but then you bring that commission to me to invest it for you. Huh. How about that? Okay, well, that's interesting. But seriously, what you'll, there is an unbelievable number of Americans out there that have capital sitting in an IRA, sitting in a 401k, sitting somewhere. They don't know what to do with it. It, it, who do you trust, right? I mean, yeah. do we trust some guy that takes a helicopter to work in New York City or, you know, or girl? Or do we throw it in Bitcoin, something unknown, unproven? <laughs> who knows? We could probably talk for days on that topic, or at least you yeah. could. That's smart. But, <laughs> but um, it's scary. And when you realize that you're not alone, first of all, that there's a lot of folks that are in the same situation, you realize that somebody kind of has to step to the front of the room and be willing to take the next step. And the next step comes down to keep your money in your bank account where it belongs for the time being. Um, you won't be needing that. That's what I tell people. Spend some time learning how to work with other folks. And some people come out of a profession where they're really good at that. Uh, you could be, I can't think of a professional on the top of my hand, but let's say you're a, uh, let's say you're a doctor. So as a doctor, you're used to talking to patients to find out what the problem is so that you can diagnose it and solve it. Well, doctors generally do really, really well as capital raisers because they're good at asking questions, questions that lead to solving problems. Mm -hmm. uh, attorneys are also really good at raising capital. Nurses are good at, at raising capital. These are these type of professions where they're service-oriented prof professions. Yeah. They naturally have to be good with people, and they have to learn how to extract information from people so they can help them. Mm -hmm. Those are your, your, your pillars, your foundation of raising capital is, is being good at that. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of folks say that's something you're born with. I, I disagree. You read enough books. You know, it doesn't take $50,000 to get an education in real estate. 
although there are people out there that'd be happy to, to lighten your bank account of that, right? <laughs> it shouldn't cost $50,000 to learn how to invest in real estate. I mean, this is not college. I mean, obviously we go to college, we spend probably more than that in a lot of cases. Um, maybe, maybe we come out with the education, we have that pedigree, but what does that do for us for a job? Very little. Yeah. We learn by doing. So for me, I would, instead of worrying about what I'm going to do with my 50,000, the answer to that question would be real simple. It'd be, you keep it someplace safe. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've got some money, if it's cash and it's not in a retirement account, if it were me, I would do, I would, and people are probably going to fall over that know me would hear me say this, but it's true. I've been following this lately is do the Dave Ramsey and have at least six months to 12 months expenses set aside in a, some sort of liquidity, emergency money. Mm -hmm. If you've got $50,000 sitting liquid, you have any sort of, of bad debt, credit card debt, you have car loans or things like that. Your money is better spent investing in that stuff that is eroding your net worth. Eliminate your debt if you've got $50,000 set aside. Live a debt-free existence. Mm -hmm. And the next question is, well, Tyler, how am I ever going to do real estate if I don't get into debt? Well, that's where the Kiyosaki mind of thinking comes in. We throw off the Dave Ramsey hat. We put on the Robert Kiyosaki hat. <laughs> and Robert teaches us the difference between good debt and bad debt, right? Good debt puts money in our pocket. Bad debt takes it out. So under those, the, that mindset, this is what my wife and I have done is we've, we've eliminated all of our debt a couple of years back. We live a debt-free existence. We don't take on any bad debt at all. Mm -hmm. Now, when we structure opportunities, we don't invest our own capital because we've taken the time to learn how to find and negotiate great deals, right? How to find opportunity. Mm -hmm. We've learned how to work, how to, where to find and how to negotiate with uh, team members that help us because we're certainly not the smartest people in the room. We don't ever want to be because exactly. that's, that's a dangerous place to be. <laughs> so instead, we, we spend a lot of our time talking to other folks. I want to know who the best real estate attorney is in the Tampa Bay area and, and where I'm going to invest in. And that, the answer is Sean Yesner. That's who that guy is. So Sean is my lead attorney when it comes to all things real estate. I want to know who is the best title company, who is the best mortgage broker, who is the best bank bank-related lender, what programs are out there, and who are the key people to help people that my tenants at some point maybe buy a home, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I get all these different people together on my team and that is how you build wealth because when you're out there solving those problems, that's where your leads start to come from. Mm -hmm. As a, somebody that wants to invest in any capacity and be successful, other people need, first of all, need to know what you're looking for. If you sit home and go, boy, you know, I would just love to find a, a mobile home park that had a 20% cash on cash return and, and people would just give me money. Well, <laughs> unless you're, if you're the only one that knows that besides you and the cat or the dog, you're never, that's never going to happen. Right. So one of the reasons why we started our podcast, my wife and I, the cashflow guys podcast was for that reason is to put the word out there that, Hey, by the way, we buy uh, multifamily apartment buildings that are ugly and nasty and we make them pretty and profitable. And we do that with friends. Mm -hmm. If you have capital sitting still that you're looking to do something with, there's a chance that we may have an opportunity that would fit for you for, to know more about that. Mm -hmm. Let's get together, have a conversation and see if there's any synergy. And if there's not, that's fine too. But all of our business really revolves around building those relationships so that we can attract the capital, attract the deals. And that is how we build our portfolio. Interesting. You know, that's a little abstract, probably from what a lot of folks would expect me to say. <laughs>
This week, we're really fortunate to have with us Mark Savatsky. Mark is the founder of a great boutique real estate development company called Choose Boston. So I know you are also a podcaster. Will you tell me a little bit about your podcast and how you got started with that? Absolutely. Yeah, first, really excited to join you today. Um, And our podcast is called Real Estate Addicts. And um, I co-host the podcast with my two good friends, Dan Rubin and Ray Herto from uh, HRV Homes. And um, my development company is Choose Boston. And uh, the three of us bring a different guest in each week, someone related to the industry, be it a broker, someone who does debt brokerage or, uh, or, or otherwise other developers. You know, it's usually about 45 minutes and we're 20 episodes in and we've really enjoyed it. That's great. So what do you look for in your guests? What kind of information are you wanting them to kind of get across to the audience? It's usually a pretty casual conversation, but we start with a background, a little bit of how you got into the industry, maybe what your first project was. Um, and then we go into more current topics and current events. We talk a lot about numbers. We try not to shy away from that wherever possible. So we'll ask what their current renovation costs they're seeing are or otherwise, if there's a certain cost per door that they're, that they're looking for for entitled projects or uh, unpermitted deals what the environment is like as far as permitting projects and how they're finding it. So is it more local folks around the Boston area or you kind of get anybody who you think can contribute? Yeah, it's funny. We've been very Boston centric. If we look at our numbers, we have like an app that shows us the back end. I'd say that 80% of our listener base is in Boston and we're trying to grow beyond that. We just brought in the Skype capabilities and we had an awesome interior designer from Devin Grace Interiors in Chicago. And uh, that was our most recent episode. So we're trying to branch out a little beyond Boston. But we're starting with, we started with our network and everyone we know is more or less in Boston. And so uh, that's, how, that's how our first episodes went. I'm willing to bet that I either work with or am related to everybody who's listening right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that might not be true, but at least uh, in the beginning. Yeah, because by the time your episode airs, it's going to be like episode 10 or something. You know, we'll be, have, have been underway for a few minutes. You'll have thousands of listeners. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get started in real estate? So I came into it from more of like the nuts and bolts uh, technical side. I'm, I consider myself a builder uh, first and foremost. Um, so I went to school at Purdue uh, University and I have a degree in construction management. And straight out of school, I went to work for Suffolk Construction, which is like the largest general contracting shop in New England, certainly, and definitely in Boston. And uh, I spent five or six years there and just every time we do a project, I'd be sitting across the table from um, the guys with the checkbook and the, de- the developers. And um, I was really admired what they were doing, kind of calling the shots and making the decisions. And I found a development group in the South End uh, about six years ago called New Boston Ventures. And uh, the guys there were good enough to give me a shot and let me be their kind of construction muscle as I learned the ropes of development. and. Um, it's been a really good ride. Yeah, it's a great way to get started just to find some folks who know things that you don't know and just absorb <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as yeah. much as you can. Yeah. No, that's definitely true. And I mean, all the while I've always had my own business and uh, ventures, be it just my first project, which was maybe just a gut renovation of a single family that I lived in with two roommates straight out of school um, and just kind of built on that. So at any given time, I have one to two uh, of my own personal projects, uh, residential value add uh, plays in, in the city. And um, that's been really rewarding too. 
I was going to ask you what's your renovation strategy or what's your, sorry, your investment strategy. And you kind of, kind of almost started going into it there. So, you know, you want to elaborate on that? Absolutely. I look for properties that I can add value to. Typically in Boston, what that's become a lot of is value adds vis-a-vis the zoning process. So if, if I can find a single family and split it into two duplexes, or otherwise if I can add a curb cut and bring parking to the rear of a building, or dormer out um, a roof and make an additional unit in what was otherwise an attic space, dig out a basement. Those are some typical formulas that I look to. Because again, every time, you know, every square foot I build might cost $200 a square foot and every square foot I sell is 600 a square foot. So anywhere that I can add sellable square footage, I'm winning. Uh, Absolutely. Do you keep anything or are you selling everything that that you're renovating and developing? I started out doing all rentals. I would renovate, uh, usually live there, and then move and then hold it as, as a rental. Uh, and I did that a number of times in South Boston and a couple other um, more desirable neighborhoods in, East, in, in Boston. And I thought that was a great way to cut your teeth and learn the ropes. It's a little bit more forgiving when you have a tenant with their punch list as opposed to a condominium buyer whose expectations are quite discerning for good reason. So from doing the rentals, I still have those, and those are terrific uh, kind of cash flow. My if all else fails backup plan. I, I've moved into more of the condominium conversion. I think that's a reflection of the market and uh, where we're at here. It's it's a little tougher to make rentals work uh, in, in a very expensive market like Boston. Absolutely, especially with so many big full service buildings going up, and you know, people are like, oh, "Okay, I can have a, yeah. the gym here," and you know, all that stuff that you can't really do in a smaller sort of a building. Yeah. No, definitely. I'm in a time in my career where I'm not interested in parking money. I'm really trying to grow, uh, and and so the condominium flips to me is is almost a deal with the devil. I I, I would much prefer to do buy and hold. I think um, a lot of the wealthiest guys I know and people I really look up to have strong rental portfolios. And I think that's the way to retire on the beach. But um, in the interim, it's a very capital intensive business. And so um, just trying to build that, build that capital base so I can eventually go back into, into doing some more rental and long-term stable assets like that. That sounds perfect. So now a lot of the folks who are, you know, the, the, um, I guess you could call it the, the, philosophy of the podcast is for folks who are at a point in their life where they want to stop working fairly soon, but they have not been able to be smart like you and start young and build up a nice big portfolio. So do you, is there anything in your strategy that you think could be employed by somebody who, you know, maybe has $50,000 or less and not a whole ton of time to, to make enough money to sort of stop working? Yeah. So I, I think that for one thing, I, I believe that single families are kind of a blind spot in the market. I think that oftentimes first-time home buyers really want the security or perceived security of a condominium. Uh, it's like training wheels on a bicycle. And I think that sophisticated, bigger developers, um, you know, three units is probably the minimum that they would look at. And so sometimes you can get a nice house with a lot of bedrooms. Um, where that could be a, a great rental. And you can even Airbnb rooms within your house, call that a house hack. And so if you can find that, that single family that has a decent amount of space, maybe a little postage stamp backyard, 
and do some minor cosmetics with it and live in it over time, I think that you can really realize some value, have a nice roof over your head. And when you do go and sell, you'll take your proceeds with you largely tax-free, which is a, a beautiful thing. I first met Tylene because she was forming an investment club that I ended up being a part of. I was actually going to ask you because I, the, the way I came up with this name, Get Your Fill, mm -hmm. is because of fire. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, I'm a little old to be retiring early. I can't have fire, you know, mm -hmm. but so I'll just go for a long life and, you know, go, and that's how I ended up with Phil. <laughs> so financial independence, I know it means a lot of different things to different people, but is there sort of a definition that mm -hmm. is an industry accepted definition that, you know, we could kind of share and use as a, a foundation? Mm -hmm. So the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau defines it as um, being able to meet, um, to maintain your quality of life, um, even in the event of an emergency. So if an emergency should happen, being able to maintain your quality of life and as well continue to um, make progress towards your long-term goals. And so that, you know, clearly make, means different things to different people. But what's so important about it is really just being aware of where you are and having some peace of mind over, you know, how much money do you need to maintain your lifestyle? Before I quit my corporate job and started my financial practice, I thought I needed a certain amount. Well, I learned that I could live off of less. And I also learned that the lower I keep my expenses, the closer I can get to that financial independence point. And so I would say for most people, financial well-being and success is just having peace of mind that um, they can maintain their lifestyle and that they can save for those long-term goals. And often that is retirement because we don't always have a choice as to when we retire. Some people say, oh, I'll work forever, but we don't always have a choice. So if we can begin to do some things and position ourselves that um, we have some things that are growing for us, um, it gives more peace of mind that you know, at that point at which either you can't work anymore or you don't want to work anymore, you have the freedom of choice of, as to whether or not. And ultimately, it's freedom of choice. Like, I tell my clients all the time, you don't have to be 60 or 70 years old when you retire. Like, you can choose to do that. But if you're in a position where you don't have debt, you know, you, you're choosing. So maybe if you want to, you know, live off of $200,000 a year, then maybe you have to keep working. But if you find that you would rather have the choice of, of working or not and live off of 20 or 30 or 40,000 a year, thousand dollars a year, sometimes that peace of mind and freedom of choice, it's worth it to people. So it just depends on what's important to you. I'm really psyched about our guest this week. Nick, he's really a successful person. He's a best-selling author. He's an accomplished speaker. He's an educator, trainer. And I, just like many people, maybe I saw an infomercial on TV once. Um, it was the uh, John Beck's Tax Lean Free and Clear System. And it was telling me, I knew, I knew nothing about real estate, right? I was a banker, so I knew nothing. And it was showing me how to buy real estate with pennies on the dollar with none of my own cash or credit. And I'm like, well, that looks kind of cool. And there's, there's a whole side story to that where I actually lost a board game and I only bought the program as like, because I was like depressed that I just lost a board game, but we won't get into that. Right. <laughs> um, so I bought this thing. It was like 50 bucks online. It shows up in the mail and I read through it. I'm like, I learned a lot about, you know, tax liens and what this and that is. And it says, if you're serious about real estate investing, call this number. 
right? Like, I, I, I guess I'm serious. So I called the 800 <laughs> number and the best salespeople in the entire world, because I still didn't have a lot of money, right? I was fresh out of school and, you know, trying to work, pay the bills and get my own place. Best salesperson in the world talked me into my first $6,000 over the phone coaching boot camp guy thing, wow. right? Yep. And I didn't get a lot out of that coaching, <laughs> except they got me to read the Rich Dad Poor Dad book, right? I assume you and most of your yes. uh, guests yes. have also mentioned that book. Yes. And if they haven't, here's another plug. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That book. It's, so that it's, book. I often have a link to that book because it's a lot of people's favorite book. It, it was the book that changed pretty much my whole, right? My whole outlook, my whole set, set outlook on life and business. So reading that book uh, got me then to, to invest in myself. And I went to the Learning Annex. And that was in 2005 in Boston. It was like this huge thing. And uh, Donald Trump, before he was Donald Trump, was there. And Robert Kiyosaki was there. And Tony Robbins was there. And a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of different people were there. Yeah. And I invested in a whole bunch of different programs. And I, you know, was a serial program buyer <laughs> for a while and I still worked at the bank and I just, I was getting angry and frustrated with myself after having spent, you know, a, a lot of money on coaching and I still hadn't done a deal yet. And I remember myself, um, I had a, I had, I had a lot of hair then <laughs> and it was in the shower and I had, I didn't really know what to do. One day I was looking in the shower, looking at a shampoo bottle saying, by the time that that shampoo bottle hits zero, I'm going to have to have a real estate deal. Like I have to close on something. I have to do something with all this coaching. And literally that bottle in my shower became my accountability partner, right? <laughs> like I, I just would look at oh. every day and I was starting to use less and less and less and I was losing hair. <laughs> I'm just going to shave my head. I can't, I can't possibly <laughs> meet this goal. <laughs> that was, that would have been ideal at the time, right? Um, but no, I, that literally became my accountability partner. And I just remember, you know, days would go by. It just, it just, I might, there were days that went by that I was just slammed at work and I couldn't do anything about it, but I'd still look at it the next morning and be like, oh. Yeah. And finally I was posting on, you know, bigger pockets and that was brand new at the time. Yeah. And another guy found me out of state and he uh, saw me out posting and, and reading articles and, and I had learned how to do the direct marketing thing because of that first over the phone boot camp with direct mail and pulling lists. It was like, I see you out there hustling. Like I I'm finding now this was 2005, right? 2005. He's like, I'm finding undervalued real estate. Um, we're, we're, we're finding undervalued real estate. We're lining up rent it to own buyers who will pay above market rent to rent those properties out for like 20% above market. And they're signing a PS agreement, a purchase and sale for 20% above what we're paying to close in three years. And the best part was so you'd be making money with rental cash flow for three years. You'd, and I was a spreadsheets guy, right? I was a banker. I wasn't a real estate guy. I was a banker. Right. So right. spreadsheet worked great. Cash flow for three years. Um, got money three years later with a cash out once they bought the place. We're helping someone with some credit issues, right? And the best part was back then, which was legal, is no longer. You could contract with the seller for $400,000 and then at the closing table, and you could finance that 90 to 100% finance back then, right? And at the closing table- No doc table, loans. Yeah, that was great. There it is. <laughs> Those were the days, man. Those were the days. <laughs> and at the closing table, the seller would give us something called a payment authorization back for like $50,000 as a good luck, uh, thanks and good luck payment. So we'd made money, made money at the closing with the cash flow for three years and then on a resale. 
I'm like, this is a no brainer. I'm not going to buy one of these things. I'm buying five of them because oh, I'm going to make all my money back for all the education and gurus that I had paid. And it just makes sense. The spreadsheets checked out. Right. And this guy was going to manage everything. He was based in Minnesota. I was based in Boston. And he was going to be managing everything from, um, you know, managing the tenants and the lease applications. And he was going to teach me along the way, right? So I closed on five with my lender out there, uh, all 90% and 100% leveraged. And we had our call with him on Monday for next steps and moving the tenants in and that sort of thing. And he, um, he didn't show up to the call. Hmm. And then, you know, Wednesday came and Thursday came and he was like answering emails, but sporadically. And then he, but it was, it's kind of elusive. And we're like, dude, like, we got to get these things rented. Like, come on, let's move these guys in. Like, I don't want to have to cover 10 mortgage payments, which would be coming up pretty shortly at that point. Yeah. Uh, and as it would turn out, the um, rental applications, the leases, and the PNS agreements were all not real. They were all forged. He took his 40% from the cash back at those closings. And we really never heard from him after that. Oh. So I paid an attorney to chase him. I paid property managers to try to rent these things out. Again, being out of state, right? I'd only seen these pictures of these places. Right. And I ended up losing. This is also 2005. My first market cycle, which happened to be seven, eight, 12 months after I got into real estate. My first <laughs> downward cycle, right? And I ended up losing all five properties. Four to short sale, one to foreclosure. And it put me out of the credit and finance game for, it wasn't seven years, it was actually nine years because it took him a year just to show up on my credit report. And they say seven years, you know, is how long a foreclosure affects you. It's really eight to nine. And it's, yeah, by time I was it's down, I was down and out. And I just remember, it was obviously a very, very dark time where my phone, I looked at my phone as being like, that was the center of evil, right? That's where collectors <laughs> would call. That's where like, nothing good came from my phone and nothing yeah. good came in the mail. Yeah. And that's where I think I had to get over myself and my mindset. Um, and I still had one course that I had already paid for that I hadn't yet taken. So I, I basically was down and out for at least three months. I put my head in the sand, worked at the bank. Thank God I still had my job. If they checked yeah. my credit, I'd lose my job, but I still had it. <laughs> and I remember I had paid for one more course that I hadn't yet taken. And that was, um, a uh, hypnotist named Marshall Silver. Do you know him? No. You don't know him? So he he was similar to like a Tony Robbins at the time, but he came as a hypnotist, like entertainer. And he moved into the self-development space. Interesting. And he, I went to his course. It was called the, um, the Turning Point. I've heard of the course. Was, it was. It was a, just a three-day weekend event. Yeah. And that literally was the event that first, the first time in my life helped me take ownership of my own stuff, right? It helped me know that this wasn't, I put a lot of blame on him. I was the victim. Like I had just been, had all this taken from me. Like this guy is, a, is, is an a-hole, excuse me, yeah. jerk. Yeah. And it, like he ruined my life right? yeah. at a young age. He's completely ruined my life for the next seven to 10 years. Yeah. And I learned that he didn't ruin my life, right? I jumped into something that I probably wasn't ready for, that I didn't do enough due diligence on. And I didn't take ownership of my own stuff. Right. And in that course, I took my own ownership and it was in that same weekend that I said, real estate's still my way out of the corporate world. And how do I do this? Um, I can't afford to lose money anymore. I'm out of the credit game, right? So how do I do this? 
where I can't, I can't lose any money. What rules do I have to set for myself? And coming from the corporate world, I knew systems and procedures, right? So like what yeah. systems do I have to set for myself? What rules? And slowly um, I got my phone back out. My phone was put, locked in a drawer for at least two months because I just didn't <laughs> want to deal with it. I didn't want to deal with the ringing, the collections calls and all that. And yeah. I finally took it out. I knew about a strategy called wholesaling, right? Um, this is before I was licensed. Yeah. And I uh, started slowly making phone calls. And I met a guy at one of the real estate investor meetings that was buying triple deckers in Somerville and Cambridge. And he was converting them to condos. Oh, I and he's a happy guy now. <laughs> he, was, he was, well, again, that was 05 and 06. So yeah. he- Oh, right. Yeah, he, he you're still, still in 05 and 06. Okay, not so good. <laughs> still 05 and 06. But he, he showed me what he was looking for. And I would just nights and weekends be on the phone and knocking on doors, talking to a lot of tenants and getting to the owners to try and find this guy deals. And he would pay me 5,000 bucks for a contract, an offer that I could get. Yeah. So that taught me, uh, it got me no longer afraid of my phone. It taught me how to look for deals. He then loaned me, you know, his contractor. I knew nothing of construction at the time. So he loaned me his contractor because my reinvestments were way off, surprisingly. <laughs> um, and it, it, from that moment forward, right, uh, about eight months later in 2006, I had enough money from all of these wholesale deals to do my first hard money loan on a triple decker myself in Somerville. And I broke even on that project. And that was the biggest That's win. That's big progress, right? That was Coming the biggest where you were. <laughs> that was it. And, and that moment forward, I was a real estate fixed and flipper slash wholesaler. Then I you know, got my license. And since then, it's always been about um, how taking ownership of my stuff. And my motto, my tagline at the time became, for my own self, for my own head was shut up and do it. Our next guest, Anne Bellamy. Anne is going to debunk the myths of hard money lending and educate us on when it is and is not a useful tool. She's the past treasurer and board member of the New Hampshire Real Estate Investors Association, and she's co-founder of the Boston Area Real Estate Investors Association and Black Diamond Real Estate Investors, which is where I met her. And she is really a wealth of knowledge on hard money lending, which I know a lot of people think might be the answer to how they're going to do investing. So, Anne, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, first of all, how did you get started in real estate? Was that your, that the plan from the beginning? <laughs> well, I I was I was the um, victim of a infomercial, just like <laughs> so many people. But this was way back um, in the '90s, and uh, back then the the biggest info guru on the uh, on TV was named Carlton Sheets, who's no one has ever heard of anymore, except <laughs> older people like me. And so Carlton Sheets then, you know, would sell this course. So I ordered this, whatever it was, course, books, tapes, something. And I listened to it and I said, you can't do that. That's ridiculous. Nobody's going to sell you a house for pennies on the dollar. So what I did do, however, is kind of get bitten by the bug because there was some explanation in there of why real estate was so good at an investment. So I started uh, investigating real estate investing on my own through other means, books, et cetera, read everything I could get my hands on, and eventually decided I want to be a real estate investor on the side. I want to buy rental properties and build equity and build income. And um, there are so many ways to make money in real estate. So I moved to New Hampshire on the 
theory that uh, my tenants would be paying all my taxes because there's no income or sales tax, only property taxes, and the, that's going to be paid for by the tenants. So that was my that was my reason for moving to New Hampshire, and uh, I'm from Massachusetts originally. So that's how I got started in real estate investing, and I I did it strictly on the side, working a regular W two job at the time, okay. and I bought my first duplex in a small town in New Hampshire that was an absolute wreck. I had no idea what I was doing, nor does anybody else when they first start real estate investing. Um, but that's how I got started. Yeah. <laughs> now, how long was it from then until you felt comfortable to leave your day job? I didn't, I probably left my day job around 2011. So it was a while. Yeah. And the reason was not because I had enough properties, but what happened, um, I, I, I found a real estate investing group. I joined the group. I ran for office just so that I could get known. Um, by mistake, I got elected to office thinking that was a big deal. It's not a big deal. It just means that they're desperate for volunteers. And uh, <laughs> Nothing against you, but I've, I've had the same experience with these volunteer organizations. They're like, oh, yes, you want to be a leader? Go, go, do it. Any volunteer organization. We're yeah. desperate for people. So, yes, if you think you can do it, you can do it. Yeah. So, um, so I, I got elected and, um, and, and then, but I took it seriously. We tried to make the content of the group as, as good as possible. So I would stand in front of this group every uh, month as if I knew what I was doing, which I was really just a beginner, a, a real beginner. Um, and I would pretend that I knew what I was doing. Yeah, and, until you um, make it, right? Until you make it, right? <laughs> so then I was working a W-2 job and I my, my boss was actually a developer, a real estate developer, because I took a job that was somewhat related to real estate. And he, his wife slash bookkeeper had to go out on bed rest. Uh, for for a difficult pregnancy, and so I ended up by default doing the accounting for the company. Um, not that that was planned, and uh, realized that he had millions sitting around making practically nothing. And so I said to him, since he was a real estate developer, I said, you know, I know a lot of real estate investors that would like to borrow your money, and you could make a lot more than the one and a half percent you're making now, or back then, I guess it was 2%. And he said, really? So we went together and got educated and I started finding him deals to lend on because I had no money. So certainly um, they were all his deals and I was in effect uh, brokering them, but he and I learned quite a lot together. And um, so what happened was that even though I was working for him in a W-2 capacity, the lending became so busy that I didn't have time to do my job. And he got very annoyed with me. <laughs> so I said, well, we'll have to hire somebody else. To my... yeah, well, yeah, he wanted to make a lot of money from me, but he didn't want me to do it on the W-2 time. Right, of course not. Yeah, maybe. He didn't want to make the two. No, yeah. I can't blame him for that. Yeah. You know, there's a job to do. So we found someone else to take my job part-time and then gradually that continued to get busy. And so we found someone to take my job full-time and I became full-time just doing lending. But it was strictly a uh, happen chance. I did not plan it. It was simply taking advantage of opportunities that presented themselves 
boom, land in my lap. Hmm, that could work. 